Pastor Chris's podcast. So, I don't know if you watched football yesterday, but if you, if you did, uh, you might know the scores. Just a little update. Old Miss beat Tennessee. Alabama beat Mississippi State. Georgia beat Kentucky. Auburn beat Arkansas. LSU beat Florida. And Georgia Tech beat Duke. So, I don't know if that... Hmm? Georgia Tech beat Duke. You should know that, Mr. Georgia. But, um, you know, if you, if you watch a football game, there often comes a certain moment in the game where the tide turns for your team and the game is just no longer winnable. You know what I mean? You can sometimes gauge when that critical moment comes. If you're watching it on television, they'll use the camera to kind of indicate that this is happening because sometimes they'll turn to the stadium and show that people are beginning to file out. You know, their team, they realize their team is not going to win. And so they start going ahead. They're going to leave early and beat the traffic and get on out of there. And they know that their team has reached that point. But if you're a true fan, you don't leave, right? You stay, you stay, you hold on to the end. And maybe you even think, that's okay, that's okay, we can still get this back. We can still get this back, and you're rooting for your team, and you're hoping they're going to they're gonna somehow come back, and then the opposing team scores another point, you know, another touchdown, another field goal, or they get an interception. It feels like the nail's being driven in the coffin, but, and you're frustrated, but you, you think it's still not over. You still believe, right? Because you're a true believer and you really want your team to win. And so you're pulling for them to win, but the time is ticking off the clock and you're down to the final few minutes and you're hoping beyond hope that your team can do it. And maybe you're thinking, you're thinking, if they, they, if they get the ball back, if this happens and that happens and, and they can still do it, it's possible. And you start running through these different scenarios in your head, like this could happen and this could happen. It's still possible. It would be a miracle. But it could happen. And, and, and you're just watching the clock counting down to the last minute and then the last second. And you don't have any timeouts left. And then you finally realize all hope is gone. It's not going to happen. Your team loses. Now, I, uh, I used to watch football more when I was a lot younger. My dad would watch football, and my older brother, my older brother's eight years older than me, so I would be like five or six years old, and he was a teenager, and they would be watching football, and so I wanted to watch football with them, and I would get all into it and get excited about our team, and we'd be watching, and, and, and they knew the game better, and they understood it, and, and when the team got into a position where it was, it was over, the writing was on the wall, they were going to lose, they would... So, well, that's it. We just can't win. But I would be the little kid because I was a kid and I didn't know the game and I didn't know any better. And I would be thinking, oh, oh, it's not over. They can they can do this. They can do this. You know that feeling. You know that feeling. Then our team would lose because it was an inevitable situation. Well, that's football. That's football. And sometimes you just can't win. But love, according to First Corinthians 13 Love is another story. Love never gives up, never loses hope. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 7, it says, Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. 
It is not irritable. It keeps no record of being wronged. It does not rejoice about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. And this is the passage we're studying, and we're looking at how love never gives up today. This passage from Paul it was his first letter to the Corinthian church. The Corinthians lived in Corinth, which is an important port city in Greece. Corinth was especially important because it was located on an isthmus, uh, uh, the Isthmus of Corinth, which is a narrow strip of land that separates the Gulf of Corinth and the Saronic Gulf. And ships would uh, come into port, and because the strip of land was so narrow, it was actually cheaper, safer, and better to transport the ships over the four-mile land bridge to the other gulf. Now think about that. Now, of course, ships back then, cargo ships back then, weren't as big as they are today, but they were still big. And it took a lot of power, and, and, and they built a road specifically for transporting these ships that four miles from one body of water to the other because it was safer, quicker, cheaper than going all the way around. Back then, sailing was very treacherous, and that particular sailing route was 185 miles, and it was particularly dangerous. So Corinth was right there at that, that isthmus, and, it, and they benefited from their location. All these trading ships were coming in, and of course they had to pay some kind of a tax or some kind of a toll in order to cross that land bridge, but they were willing to do it. And that made Corinth a very wealthy city. And of course, when people have a lot of money to spend, they like to spend that money on having a good time. And there are all kinds of different people coming through Corinth, and so Corinth became a city that was known for luxurious, lavish, and often quite sinful living. Ancient Corinth was the home of the temple of the god Aphrodite. Have you ever heard of Aphrodite? You know who she was? She was the god of love. Corinth was the home of the goddess of love, and it was said that the temple of Aphrodite employed 1,000 professional prostitutes to help the worshipers worship Aphrodite. That's one way to get people to come to church. I don't know if it's the best way, but it probably would work. By the time Paul wrote his letter, Corinth had been taken over by the Roman Empire and they converted the temple of Aphrodite to the temple of Venus, the Roman god of, or goddess of love. So uh, both Aphrodite and Venus are known in their legends for their jealousy, their beauty, and for their affairs with both gods and mortals. Study notes in the MacArthur Study Bible say that even by pagan standards, even by the pagan standards of its own culture, Corinth became so morally corrupt that its very name became synonymous with debauchery and moral depravity. 
to Corinthianize came to represent gross immorality and drunken debauchery. So if you wanted to insult somebody for being morally depraved, you would basically call them a Corinthian. That's how bad it was. And yet despite Corinth's centuries of sin and debauchery and corruption, corrupting the very virtue of love itself, God did not give up on them. God sent Paul to Corinth in A.D. 49 or A.D. 50. And according to Acts chapter 18, verse 11, it says Paul spent 18 months discipling a group of Christians who then formed the Corinthian church. God's always working to save people and to bring them back from the brink of destruction. And it doesn't matter how far gone people seem to be, God still cares. We see this clearly in the Corinthian church. From, the city, from a city as wicked as Corinth, God established a group of Christians to become a beacon of light and hope and salvation. And it's not that he brought people from the outside into the city to make it better. He started with the people in Corinth and he saved them. And he says, I want to make you into my followers, and I want you to tell everyone how to live the right way and how to love what love really is, not what they've been told all these years through the temple of the goddess of Aphrodite or, or Venus, but the love of the one true God. And they still had a lot to learn. The Corinthian church had some severely warped ideas about love. And it's no wonder for all of these years they, they were the product of this city that worshipped the so-called goddess of love, that taught that love was only carnal, that love was something that consumed other people, that took what they liked about other people and, and used it for a selfish enjoyment. And so Paul wrote and said that the one true God's love is not like that. It's best demonstrated in Jesus Christ, in the sac sacrificing love of Jesus Christ on the cross. And so Paul wrote, love is patient and kind. And he had to teach the Corinthians that love is not jealous like the so-called goddess of love, Aphrodite or Venus. That love is not boastful or proud, so they shouldn't be fighting amongst themselves about who is most important or who is more spiritual or who is going to be in charge of the church. And so he was writing to them about this. And, and today we're learning that love never gives up. It never loses faith and is always hopeful, just as God never gave up on the Corinthians despite their centuries of wickedness and sexual immorality and moral corruption. God's love never gives up, and it changes people's lives. It was changing the Corinthians' lives, and it was changing the world. John 3.16 is probably one of the most well-known verses in the whole Bible, and for good reason. John 3.16 could be a summary for the entire story of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, so that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. That's what John 3.16 says. And the whole story of the Bible, from the beginning to the end, is the story of God's love that never gives up, never loses faith, and is always hopeful, 
that people will turn from their evil ways and return to a love relationship with God. Throughout the centuries, while God is reaching out to people to beckon them to come back to him, God is also setting up his plan to save the whole world. The ultimate message of God's love is given through Jesus Christ. In Jesus, God came in the flesh to show the world his love. He came teaching people the truth about how to live. His presence brought healing and life everywhere he went. The lame were made to be able to walk and the blind could see and the deaf began to hear. Leprosy and deformity and demonic possession were banished. And so, hoping beyond hope, God reached out to fallen humanity. There is a way to heal your spirit. There is a way to be made whole. There is a way to be saved. And this is captured so well in John 3.16. And so there's this tremendous hope, this sense of hope surrounding Jesus. And the disciples followed Jesus and crowds of people heard his teachings and saw his miracles and they began to believe, could this be the Messiah who was sent to save us even when it seems that all hope is lost? Jesus came in love, but then we crucified him. And can you imagine the disappointment of Jesus' disciples and his followers? Jesus was love. He was hope. They put all of their faith in him. And then he was brutally murdered on a Roman cross. Roman crucifixion was the most painful, humiliating, degrading way to kill someone. It was intentionally designed to make a bold statement to anyone who dared to challenge Roman superiority. Crucifixion's message was this. We own you. We can do whatever we want to you, any of you. It doesn't matter if you're a peasant a religious leader or a prophet or a priest or a king or even supposedly a messiah or a god. We can strip you naked. We can beat you to a pulp. We can nail you to a cross and hang you up to die an agonizing death that's going to take days while everyone, including your mother, watches. That's who we are and that's who you are. If ever there was a moment in history when the game was lost, it was on the Friday they nailed Jesus to the cross. And I don't care who you were or how much faith you had, everyone who saw Jesus die knew the game was over. Love had lost. Some cried bitter tears. Some got angry and cursed Jesus and spat on him. Some left because they knew the game was over. Some ran away in horror and hid in fear and hid in shame. Some just stared in disbelief 
how could this happen? How can evil triumph over good? And what do we do now? There's a certain point in a football game when you know it's the point of no return. The game's lost. There's no hope to win. But that's just a football game. What do you do when it's real life? What do you do when the marriage really is over and it ends in divorce and the papers are signed and the ink is dry? What do you do when your son's addiction finally takes him? What do you do when cancer wins? What do you do when the game clock of real life finally says zero and it really is over? What do you do when Jesus is really dead? Jesus was dead. He was buried in a tomb. Stone was rolled over the door. Guards were guarding the entrance so that no one could get in. But Jesus was coming out. And on the third day, Jesus rose from the grave. With God's love, true love, eternal love, there is always hope. 1 Corinthians 3, 7 says, Love, and we're talking about God's love, love never gives up, never loses faith. It's always hopeful. Love never fails. Not God's love. It's hard sometimes for the older people among us myself included, to, to get this, to hold on to it. Maybe that's why Jesus said, I tell you the truth, anyone who doesn't receive the kingdom of God like a child will never enter it. Mark ten fifteen. See, children sometimes have more faith than adults. Because adults know better. We're older. We're smarter. We know how the game of life works. We know when the game is over. Even if the clock hasn't finished running out, we think we know how it's going to end. And we know when hope is lost. But children don't think that way. That's why they believe in things like magic. They believe in hope. They still believe in miracles. And God is a God who works through miracles. He saved the world through a miracle. Jesus was dead. And then he was alive. He can save you through a miracle too. So we need to be mature. We need to not think like children. We need to have our intelligence. We need to use our maturity and our wisdom that we've gained through the years. But we also need to keep our childlike faith. Because yes, 
Maybe it is like Jesus said. Humanly speaking, it may be impossible. But he also said, but with God, everything is possible. But I want to tell you something. Something that that you need to understand because you're an adult that has a mature mind and you can reason and understand. Sometimes you've got to lose before you can win. Sometimes you've got to die before you can live. There may be something you've got to let go of before you can receive the new thing God wants to give you. But in order for that to happen, you've got to trust God. Open your heart. Let go. And let God do a new thing in you. Father, thank you for giving us a hope that never runs out in Jesus Christ. For even if death comes, we know that that's not the end. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.